On Wednesday, January 12th, 1966, at 7.30 p.m., I sat down in front of our black and white Packard Bell TV with the clicking channel changer. Remember those? And along with every other nine-year-old in America awaited the television event of the year, Batman. <laughs> Do you remember? Batman. We were so excited. Every one of us that shelled out 12 cents every week for the new DC comic strip could hardly wait to have the Cape Crusader swing into our living room twice a week. Only thing is, we were expecting this, and we got this. <laughs> I remember thinking that Robin looked like a sissy, and Batman looked wimpy. Where were all of those bulging muscles that I was expecting? He looked like a, a sunken-chested accountant. No offense to all of you burly accountants out there, but it, I'm telling you. Now, we, we still watched it, all of us, we still watched it twice a week, but the TV Batman was never quite the superhero that I expected him to be. I wonder if the first witnesses to the birth of Jesus, a, 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 grub, a group of grubby shepherds, felt something of the same sort of thing. I'm Pastor Mark Toon, and we are in the middle of a, a sermon series called, What Not What We Expected. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been awaiting their own superhero who would deliver them from oppression. And finally that day came, but what they got was not what they expected. I want you to listen to the account as it comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, if you want to turn with me. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. Holy God, speak to us now through your word. Remind us of this remarkable time in a season that was not what we expected, meet us in an unexpected way today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, for centuries the Jews were awaiting their superhero. They even had a name for him, the Messiah. But the Messiah, really, it just meant the word anointed one. Anointed one. Every king or priest or prophet uh, who was a part of Jewish culture, was marked for their service by the pouring of oil upon their head, the anointing of them. The oil represented the Holy Spirit of God in preparing them for a holy task. They were anointed. But the most of, special of all of the anointed ones, the Messiah, he was long awaited. The messengers of God, the prophets as we call them, hinted of his coming throughout their writings. We heard again and again. It was kind of like those teaser commercials that reminded us that the next episode of Batman was right around the corner. Stay tuned, kids. Same bat time, same bat channel. You watched it with me. I knew you did. 
For centuries, the prophets foretold the coming of the Messiah. They told the Jews to stay tuned because he was coming. Guys like Isaiah who said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Psalms described the Messiah as one who would defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. He would destroy his enemies, we were told, with a rod of iron, and he would dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Shepherds, as I'm sure you know, were near the bottom of the totem pole socially in the Jewish world. But even an uneducated shepherd knew that when the Messiah came, he was going to be a a powerful superhero who was going to deliver them from the boot of the Romans. So imagine their surprise that night. In a blinding blaze of glory, the angels announced that the Messiah, the long-awaited superhero, had been born, finally. But he wasn't born in a palace in Jerusalem. He was born in Podunk, Bethlehem. And the way that they would recognize their Messiah is that he would be a baby lying in a filthy feed trough surrounded by livestock. They expected a superhero, and what they got was small and unremarkable and weak. And it just wasn't what they expected. What's interesting is it's not like the prophets didn't foretell that aspect of the coming of the Messiah too. The prophet Messiah, uh, the prophet Micah predicted the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. And he also promised that the Messiah would suffer at the hands of his own people. The Psalms predicted the crucifixion of the Messiah. So this theme of the weakness of Messiah should not have caught them by surprise. And yet it did. Perhaps because they preferred the image of a conquering, avenging superhero. Who wouldn't? But it does raise the question, then, what happened? Were half of these prophecies about the Messiah wrong? My family and I love to climb a, a, a mountain called Pinnacle Peak near Mount Rainier. And from the top of Pinnacle Peak, you can look out across a, a vast range of mountains. And they all seem one right after another. Actually, it is a series of ranges that are separated oftentimes by many, many miles. You're looking at what appears to be the same thing, but they're very far apart. When you're looking at Old Testament prophecy, you're actually doing the same sort of thing. You're looking from the side at these pinnacles of experience that are coming, but you don't realize that they are separated by great seasons of time. This powerful, conquering Messiah, or a weak, suffering Messiah, which is it? And the answer is, it's both. They are just separated by eons. The conquering Messiah has yet to come. We are promised he will. The book of Revelation talks a lot about the return of the Messiah, the advent that Gunnar was speaking of earlier. This time he's going to come on a great white stallion and he's going to vanquish the forces of evil. That time is coming someday. But the first time the Messiah came, it was different. 
Someday we'll have a Messiah who returns in power and destroys evil and restores a kingdom that is good and pure and just. And don't we long for that? Especially right now, don't we long for all things to be set right, for all injustices to be avenged? Especially in a year like this, a year of plague and a year of racial unrest and of violence and of wildfires and of grueling political turmoil. You might be wondering if Jesus' return is imminent. More than one person has asked me. And it sure feels like the end times, doesn't it? But not quite yet. Those times will come. But the first time the Messiah came was in gentleness. And in weakness. And it's fair to ask why. Why would he come that way? Because the Messiah's first mission was not to conquer. His first mission was to save. Jesus didn't come to destroy the wickedness of humanity. Jesus came to save humanity from that wickedness. John the Gospel writer put it very familiarly, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. The first time Jesus the Messiah came, he was on a mission, a rescue mission. He came to rescue a people who had lived under one cruel oppressor after another, almost without exception, almost without break. They lived, first of all, under the Assyrians, and then under the Babylonians, and then under the Persians, and then under the Greeks. Ultimately, they lived under the most cruel of all, the Romans, the most efficient cruel oppressors of all. For centuries, the Jews had suffered, and they waited, wondering if God had forgotten them. But God had not forgotten his people. God still loved his people. God remembered his promises to his people. And so when he finally came, the first time he came to save. Now, how do you save people who have been constantly abused by power? With tenderness. The last thing the Jewish people needed was more power. They had had enough of power. What they needed What we all need is tenderness, the weakness of the child. But Rome didn't respect weakness, and frankly, our world doesn't either. We respect raw power. But power is a very tricky thing to handle. I have a rusty park bench, and I decided that I was going to sand it down and paint it. And because it was rusty, I decided to pull out my craftsman half-horsepower drill, electric drill, with wire brush attachment. And because it is very rusty, I decided to use the locking button so that I wouldn't have to hold the trigger down the whole time, which was working ducky until I pulled the drill back for a moment to take a peek at my work. And I snagged that wire brush in my sweatshirt, and it began to wrap itself around my sweatshirt with that still 
turning drill. And it kept running and kept rapping and started climbing up my chest, slapping me with the handle every time it turned around. So I grabbed it with both hands, that one half inch, that one half horsepower motor. It took both of my hands to subdue it, which meant I could not get my hand on the button to release the trigger. And so there I stood. I could have cried out for help, but that would have meant revealing my stupidity to my wife. And a hesitation I've obviously overcome since I've shared it with the whole of the internet world. But for what seemed like a very long time, I stood there holding an angry, humming, spinning drill, trying to figure out how to keep from turning my sweatshirt into a wad of paint rags while I was still in it. By the time I was done, my sweatshirt looked like it had been worn by Jabba the Hutt. (laughs) Power is a very tricky thing to handle. Used properly, it can accomplish a great deal. Used carelessly, it can overwhelm you and those around you. And it has ever been so. Most of you are familiar with Lord Acton's famous adage, Regarding power, he said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I wonder if you remember the next line, great men are almost always bad men. Great men are almost always bad men. And we need look no further than our American political scene to have some of that corroborated in our own observation. Across our country, powerful men and women are doing everything they can to gain power, cling to power, exercise power over us, and yet pathetically we tend to submit and to idolize these powerful leaders and mock the weak ones. We are still enthralled with power, which makes our love of Christmas all the more mystifying. Because Christmas is the story of an all-powerful God who set aside his power and chose the way of weakness in order to save an abused and bullied world. Which raises then another question to my mind. What does God think of my weakness? Because we are all weak, aren't we? We all have vulnerabilities. We all have places of shame and pain which we would prefer to hide because we know that the world does not admire that. But there's no hiding our real selves from God, is there? So what does God think of my weakness? And his answer is, he loves it. He loves our weakness Because when we have the courage to admit that we are weak, it is then that we are able to move on to a next and more important confession, and here it is. We are not in control. We are not in control. If COVID has reminded us of anything, it is that we are not in control. Despite the efforts of our best scientists, despite a record-setting pace on the development of vaccines, The end is still not in sight. The psalmist once cried out, How long, O Lord? And I'll confess that I have added that that psalm to my prayers in recent weeks. How long, O Lord? It is helpless, isn't it, when we feel out of control. 
But the moment we do is the moment we can finally admit that God is in control and has been all along. God loves it when we are weak and admit it. God loves it when we give up the pretense of running our own lives because it allows Him to return to the place that only He should hold, and that is the place of lordship in our life. And when He does, when we admit that God is in charge and and we are not in charge, it is actually such a relief. Isn't it? The Apostle Paul once wrote, when I am weak, then I am strong. When we confess our weakness, when we confess our inability, when we admit that the, the, the inadequacy of our wealth or our power or our health or our schemes and begin to rely upon Almighty God, it is amazing what He can do for us and through us. So, beloved, here's my Advent challenge for you. I would like you to think of one thing in your life that you are desperate to control that you're clinging to the control of. Maybe it's your safety. Maybe it's your safety in the midst of COVID, desperate to protect your health. Maybe it's your finances in this crazy season. Maybe it's your spouse or your child. Or maybe it's your political world. How are you doing at controlling that? What is the one thing in your life that you are most desperate to retain control over and that keeps you awake at night. In a moment, we're going to pray. And I want to use this as an opportunity for you to offer that to the Lord, for you to confess your weakness to Him and surrender to His power and His Lordship over everything. I promise you this. It will be a great relief for you to admit what you already know to be true. You are not in control, but God is. Jesus came to us in his weakness so that we might come to him in our weakness. Would you join me in prayer? Holy God, forgive me for the pretense of power in my life. Forgive me for clinging desperately to the control that I don't really have. And now as we are gathered in the sanctuary and across this region, we admit, Lord, that we are in fact weak. We confess that weakness to you. We set aside the pretense of control and power. We bow before you who are king, ever-powerful, ever-lord. We bow before that. And right now, Lord, we just lift to you one thing. I invite you to think, what is the one thing you are desperately trying to control in your life? Your health? Your child? Your career? What is that thing? Would you offer that to the Lord even now? Say, Lord, here here is my pretense of power. Here is my pretense of control. I admit my weakness, and I lift this to you and ask that you, O God, the good one, the tender one, the merciful one, will take that to yourself 
and set me free from the fear that comes with controlling things I cannot control. As I lay myself even more innocently and trustingly in the arms of Jesus. For we pray these things through him. Amen.